The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, Michael Saylor, the MicroStrategy CEO turned Bitcoin king, called upon fellow business executives to avoid the path of financial serfdom and outlined a strategy for corporate Bitcoin adoption. He joins to talk about his pitch to other companies that he made at his virtual World Now Bitcoin-themed conference. Well, I think in the current monetary environment, cash is diluted to shareholder value. If you can't get a return risk-free in excess of 15% on your assets, you're not going to keep up with the rate of M2 monetary expansion. So the pitch, in essence, is convert a non-performing asset into the best performing asset. Bitcoin's been appreciating at 220% just about every year on average for the past 10 years. So there's nothing that's gonna be more accretive to your shareholder value than to flip your non-performing cash into an accretive digital asset like right. Bitcoin. And so the moves that you made here, uh, Michael, over, over the past year, is this then a general assessment on your part and the folks who work for you that the dollar and its position right now in the world right now is going to continue down this trajectory? You're confident that that's going to be the case? Well, I think the macroeconomic outlook is for monetary expansion in the range of 15% for the next three, four, five years. I think before March of 2020, we didn't feel that way. The, the money supply had been expanding at 5% for a decade. So in an expansionary uh, monetary environment, you want scarce assets. And the scarcest asset in the world is Bitcoin. It's digital gold. It was designed and engineered to be the scarcest asset in the world. Michael, of course, you had that Twitter conversation with Elon Musk. But when you're talking to other corporates looking to do this, are we talking of the scale of a Tesla? Mm. Everyone's now saying Apple's going to do it. Maybe they'll become an exchange. But are you seeing big companies wanting to follow your lead? You know, we had, we had a conference last week, and I expected a few thousand. We had 8,000 firms represented. Uh, the conversations went viral to 250,000 different people over YouTube. And uh, my phone's been ringing off the hook. It's just, uh, it's pretty amazing the degree of interest across the board, private companies, public companies, institutions, and the like. Uh, so, you know, obviously, going back to that question, when Elon asked you at the end of the year, he's like, oh, are such transactions even possible? Talk to us about the mechanics of putting a lot of money into Bitcoin. How do you execute the trade? And then how do you store it and custody it in a way that sort of makes sense, whether it's... Do you hold your keys? Do you tr 
trusted to a third party. How should companies think about that aspect of the challenge? You know, there, there are institutional grade providers and, and you either go the route of buying the Bitcoin and you can do it with firms like Coinbase or you uh, go into a fund with Grayscale or, or a firm like NYDIG, which does both. And generally, these, these are institutional grade uh, providers. They'll do the trade. They'll acquire the asset. They'll custody it for you. Um, so uh, between their offering and the fact that we published a corporate playbook uh, for Bitcoin acquisition, which will compress the multi-month process down to days, I think it's becoming substantially speedier and simpler uh, for the typical corporation. Yeah, we were speaking a little bit earlier with a uh, big investor, Michael Novogratz, who uh, basically congratulated you and called Elon Musk a genius for listening to you. While we were speaking to him, there was some news out of Miami that the mayor there is actually interested in adding uh, Bitcoin or some type of cryptocurrency uh, to that city's uh, financial balance sheet. What do you think about the general idea of some of the governments themselves actually moving into this? I think it's brilliant. Uh, state, municipal, uh, governments, uh, they have a challenge. Uh, they've got balance sheets. They can raise capital, and if they can invest capital into a, an accretive asset like Bitcoin, which is appreciating dramatically against the dollar, that takes pressure off their tax payers. Uh, it's good for everybody involved, and Francis Suarez is probably the most progressive mayor in the country right now. Michael, the amount you've put to work, I believe it's about three billion or thereabouts into Bitcoin. We saw one and a half billion done by Tesla. But when you hear of diversified play, do you think of a number? Do you think how one a culprit should have about 10 percent of mm. its balance sheet within crypto? How do you think about it? Well, you know, I can't imagine why anybody wouldn't want to invest at least 10 percent of their balance sheet in an asset which is going up. In, in excess of 200% a year on average over the course of a decade. So I, I think that that's uh, very straightforward, almost a no-brainer. I think that the, that the more aggressive move is to convert most of your balance sheet into Bitcoin. Th this is part of a general trend toward digital transformation. Instead of, instead of digitally transforming your P&L, we're talking about digitally transforming your balance sheet and going from an analog asset like cash to a digital asset like Bitcoin. I think it's going to continue for the next decade because it's enormously accretive to shareholders. And how much should, people, should companies be allocating to Dogecoin here? <laughs> Dogecoin, Dogecoin is good fun for the industry. Lots of good fun, but... You know, as a treasury reserve asset, I would steer people toward Bitcoin. It's digital yeah. gold and it's the institutional grade safe haven asset of the 21st century. All right. Well, to build off of Joe's uh, silly question with somewhat of a serious one, uh, do you worry at all about sort of the Dogecoins of the world? Maybe, uh, I guess, dinging maybe the credibility of Bitcoin or Ethereum mm -hmm. or some of the other more, I guess, legitimate quote currencies out there? No, I, I mean, I think it's really primarily for entertainment value and um, hundreds and hundreds of institutions and corporations that are, that are looking at uh, an inflation hedge and a digital asset. They're looking at Bitcoin uh, very seriously. No one's seriously looking at Dogecoin. <laughs> Just for fun. Uh, Michael, for fun, of course, aside, it's interesting also that Elon 
has the capability of buying gold when he put it into, you know, going more diversified. It wasn't just digital gold, but also real gold via ETFs or whatever. Is there a reason why you didn't want to go gold or have you got that op optionality within the convertible bonds issuance that you did? <coughs> We went through the same exercise and studied it. Uh, gold peaked in August at the same time we bought Bitcoin. Yeah. If we bought gold instead of Bitcoin, we would be down $2 billion. <laughs> um, <laughs> it would have been a disaster. And, and, and yes, we considered why. Here's the reason we didn't buy gold. Because Bitcoin is digital gold and Bitcoin is a better gold than gold. So once people start thinking about what they want, which yeah. is a which is a non-sovereign safe haven store of value, they're going to realize that Bitcoin does the job of gold right. better. And you're seeing all of the institutional flows move out of gold into Bitcoin. Bitcoin is you know going to be trillion dollar asset. Yeah. It'll move to be a ten trillion dollar asset. It's going to demonetize gold. And so if you believe in, in um, that sort of asset, gold will be the loser as rational investors readjust their allocation from gold to Bitcoin to do the same thing better. Then we took another look at crypto, the environmental impact of it. Nick Carter, founding partner of Castle Island Ventures, joined to discuss Bitcoin's climate footprint and made the case for why the cryptocurrency is not as bad for the climate as many critics say. Thanks for having me back. And um, yeah, I'll start by saying, look, Bitcoin absolutely is an industry that consumes a lot of energy. That is by design. We needed to find a way to issue the units fairly. So to create a unit of Bitcoin, miners have to burn some energy. Uh, Satoshi thought about alternative ways to do it, but there wasn't really a better way to fairly distribute a monetary unit from scratch. Now, Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance has some good estimates on Bitcoin's uh, renewable versus non-renewable share of energy. They find that it's about 39% as of their most recent study. The Chinese element is very interesting. Certainly some Bitcoins are mined with coal in Xinjiang province and Inner Mongolia. But if you look at the other provinces where it's actually, there's a lot of Bitcoin mining activity on a seasonal basis, you're looking at Sichuan province and Yunnan province in those places, there's a lot of hydropower that was overbuilt over the last decade, yeah. and that's hydropower which would otherwise be curtailed. And so you see that being put to use mining Bitcoin, yeah. and so that's a cleaner way to mine it. So, so it's sort of a, a more nuanced picture than than some of the critics so represent. Stick, so sticking with that nuance then, Nick, I mean, a lot of people would, when they sort of talk about uh, how dirty Bitcoin is, they compare it to the idea of sort of, you know, how dirty sort of cash would be or swiping a credit card would be, and that's the comparison they're making. Is that a fair apples-to-apples -apples comparison? It's just very different. I mean, a credit network is a small layer in the broader payments, clearing, and settlement monetary stack, and ultimately those networks depend on the US dollar. So I would argue that since Bitcoin proposes an entire self-contained monetary and payment system, you should probably be comparing that to the whole dollar system and all the externalities that, that entails. Uh, and you could even, if you wanted to stretch the analogy a little bit, represent that the US military is one of those pillars that supports the dollar system. Of course, that's a big consumer of oil. So it really is a function of what you compare it to a lot of people compare it to individual payments networks like Venmo or Visa. I'm not exactly sure that's a fair comparison because those are just small layers in the broader dollar system. Nevertheless, I'm sure we're all 
hoping for a cleaner, greener future. You talked about how Satoshi had sort of thought about ways in which this whole structure, the whole mining concept could be more energy efficient. But what are some of the clever ways in which people are trying to adopt mm. clean energy within the whole mining process? Yeah, so the interesting thing about Bitcoin and proof of work is that Bitcoin is a geography independent buyer of energy. And we've never actually had that before. Generally speaking, we have to create energy near to population centers. That's not the case with Bitcoin. All you need is internet in order to mine it. So you have this interesting geography arbitrage situation where Bitcoin is a buyer of energy in those places where it might be curtailed otherwise, where energy might be abundant, but there's not a buyer for it. So that was the case, for instance, uh, in the southern provinces of China that I mentioned, where there was far too much hydropower and China hasn't done a good job of building the infrastructure to transport that to population centers. So that is the reason uh, partially the Bitcoin is so abundant in China because they had overbuilt that hydro capacity. There's another really interesting uh, movement here represented by a number of American companies to mine Bitcoin with otherwise vented or otherwise flared natural gas, which is a byproduct of oil mm. mining. And so in a number of places we see in the US in Alberta, Canada, uh, where there's a lot of oil activity and the natural gas cannot easily be captured because it's not very economical to put in pipelines to transport it. You see entrepreneurs setting up mining rigs off the grid where they mine Bitcoin, they capture the natural gas, and that is effectively neutral from a climate perspective or actually positive from a climate perspective because vented methane is a far worse greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, which is what you get when you combust it. So there's some very interesting uh, externalities or emergent qualities of the fact that Bitcoin is this sort of geography independent energy buyer. So on the one hand, let's say there's a mix. Some of it is renewable. Some of it is perhaps energy that would have gone wasted others. Some of it is sort of classic uh, hydrocarbons. You know, in your vision and in the vision of many Bitcoiners, Bitcoin is just getting started. It's not, you know, it's a fraction of the size of the gold, let alone the size of the U.S. dollar. Does Bitcoin's total energy consumption source regardless? It doesn't scale, right? It just will it continue to grow linearly, essentially, along with price? This is, yeah, so it's a, it's a great question, Joe. This is a, a point that a lot of the critics and actually the academic papers on the topic get wrong. So they assume a standard energy footprint on a per transaction basis, and then they extrapolate this. And that's probably not the way you should be running that analysis. The reason miners spend so much energy and so much effort on mining Bitcoin is because for the most part, most of their revenue comes from the new issuance of Bitcoins. So Right now, about 85% of their revenue comes from new Bitcoins being issued to them. But the interesting thing is that we're 88% done with that process. So in the future, most of the revenue from miners will be uh, will accrue from fees, from users hmm. paying to use the Bitcoin network. And those fees, it depends how you model it out. But I would actually expect that the fee intensity would cause a lower structurally minor revenue in the distant future as the subsidy trails off. So the subsidy is not gonna be with us forever. It gets cut in half every four years, as we discussed on my prior appearance on this show, uh, to great controversy. So it's a very interesting change in dynamic where you really do have to consider the fact that Bitcoin is gonna be fee-based in the future, and you can use that to model out the minor revenue from there. And we also spoke with Matt Brunig, the founder of the People's Policy Project. Matt came on to talk about Senator Mitt Romney's new plan to fight child poverty. 
and the problem he sees with using tax credits for this purpose. So he started by asking him what the benefits are of universal checks. Yeah, so, you know, about people who need income in society, you have people who work, wage earners, and then you who don't. And our society benefits for most populations that don't work. We have old age pension for the people, disability benefits for disabled people, and we have unemployment benefits for unemployed people. Children, we don't actually have benefits for. We have these tax credits in uh, the tax code, which exclude the very poor or very complicated to apply for. So I think the, the basic case for bringing that on budget and doing it through direct benefits is really just to say, look at the success of these other programs. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE like Social Security and unemployment insurance, it works very well there. Uh, it doesn't work so well as a tax credit. Matt, of course, the Romney proposal does take away from other benefits to really refocus on the Family Act. From your perspective, is it the right way of reallocating cash in particular? It doesn't leave any sort of poverty trap, as we like to talk about? Uh, you know, there, we, we can go back and forth on uh, what, the per, what the precise uh, way that you change the existing system is. Um, I have a proposal in which I basically uh, get rid of the child tax credit and most of the earned income tax credit. Romney does the same thing, but goes further and gets rid of the head of household filing status, the child and dependent care tax credit, and TANF. Uh, I personally, you know, like in my proposal, I don't do that. But, uh, uh, you know, in an up or down vote, you would definitely choose the Romney uh, system over our current system. It's a massive improvement over our current system. So, you know, I, I sort of you could do it better. You could do it worse, uh, yeah. better than what we have now by, by a large margin. Well, let's talk about doing it better than Matt. I mean, what is ideal here? Are we just talking about just some sort of universal level of income that we give out for uh, per child? Yes, I think, uh, you know, the way I view it is if you look at the difference between uh, the one person poverty line and the two person poverty line, it's about $380 a month. So I say that should be what the child benefit is, because if you set the child benefit there, then no, per no family will ever go into poverty just because they added a child in poverty for some other reason, but not that one. So that, to me, seems like a very natural place to set the benefit. From there, you want to get duplicative benefits that don't really make sense anymore when you have a benefit like that. So the child tax credit is an obvious one. The earned income tax credit, at least part of a large part of the earned income tax credit is another one. Uh, maybe the head of household filing status, maybe the child dependent care tax credit. Um, you know, we could talk about other kind of benefits, but but that's the basic idea. Yes, yeah, at the degree to which adding a child family uh, increases income. Matt, critics of universal programs, in particular this one, have leveled the charge that 
Uh, if it's not part of the tax code, if it's a direct check to everyone, that there could be people at the margin who find that to be a disincentive to work and that they see that as a, a cost to the system, a negative uh, to the system, what's your, uh, what's your response to that criticism of universal checks for every child? Yeah, well, I think it's useful to, uh, you know, between incentives. You have a disincentive to work comes from losing benefits when you work this with Medicaid, you might have insurance, so that might cause people not to work more. With a universal benefit, that particular disincentive is eliminated. You work more, you don't lose your benefit issue. Now, uh, you're less desperate because you have more income, so you can be busy, and so in that it empowers you maybe to work a little bit less. But if you look at other countries, especially Canada, which has which is very similar to the U.S. and implemented a, a fairly similar benefit there very recently, you don't see big reductions in work effort. In fact, overall, there was a slight uptick in work effort among women with children. Talk to us, Matt, about what on a federal level currently happens and versus state level and whether, from your perspective, is all of this better doled out from the federal level? Mm. Yeah, I think the federal government has been much better at administering uh, benefits over the years. When you look at uh, benefits that are administered on the state level, you have unemployment insurance, which, uh, you know, was a train wreck, honestly. Uh, you know, they did as, as good as they could in the, in the recession. You know, they had a 40-year-old code. They couldn't update it. Uh, and, and programs like SNAP and Medicaid are constantly under assault. Constantly, uh, states are, are making it more and more difficult to get it, putting more and more requirements on it. Uh, the federal benefits, you don't really have that issue. Social Security, old age pensionability benefits work very well. They're rarely cut and uh, have a lot of harassing uh, parameters on them. So I think federal is the way to go. Uh, state governments just don't, don't have the competency that the federal government has. When we talk about support for these programs, I mean, there's a lot of tallying of the various members of Congress who would support this or wouldn't. What do we know about just public support for it? Do you have any general hmm. statistics about that? Uh, you know, I haven't seen any polls uh, that asked that have asked people in particular. Uh, one thing I think you might be able to look at, uh, you know, the success of the economic input payments, the uh, $1,200 check and then the $600 check that went out earlier this year. Uh, they're going to do another $1,400 check, or at least that's what they're talking about. Those have been very popular. You ask people, do you want those? They say this is really just kind of a monthly version of that for kids. Uh, you know, if you could generalize from that, uh, you, you might be able to say, oh, there, there's probably a lot of support here. And this week, President Biden's stimulus bill made its way through the House committee markup process. So we got an update on the economic ramifications of that legislation with former Federal Reserve economist and Bloomberg opinion columnist Claudia Sam. Claudia has done as much as any other economist in the country to popularize the idea of direct checks as a means to fight economic downturns. So we started by asking her what the best argument is for going as broad as possible when deciding who gets the check, even if that includes people who may still be making good money during the pandemic. Yeah, so the best argument is it works, right? We have experienced, and this is my very strong opinion that we need to get this money out and we get it need to get it out broadly. Now, none of these checks have gone to the top 10% of households by income. Okay, so they are targeted. But I think, you know, we should get these out to, you know, hundreds. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work 
passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE of millions of people. We did that in 2008. This was something I followed when I was at the Federal Reserve as a forecaster. I've done research on it. I looked at all of the programs in the great after the Great Recession, making work pay tax credit, payroll tax cut, by far the best way to both support people and to get that economy going again is to give them money and, and make it big. So I think this is good. And then they're also popular, which is, you know, not real surprising. I, <laughs> so. I guess the pushback on that, Claudia, would be why now? I mean, this moment, I mean, it, it sort of made sense or, or it was an easier sell, I should say, uh, a year ago or even six months ago. Now some people look at the economic data and they say, do we really need that right now? And so I think the reality is that we have become so normalized to what we are living right now. So one, one thing to keep in mind, we are still missing 10 million jobs relative to before COVID. That is a larger shortfall than we saw even in the depths of the Great Recession. So we are in a place of immense suffering. Frankly, something we haven't seen since the Great Depression, the 1930s in its breadth. The U.S. Census Bureau tells us that as of January, half of U.S. households had lost employment income during the crisis, that's massive. Now it's not 80%, and that's what the, with the $75,000 cutoff, 80% of every woman, man, and child in this country gets money, but that's a lot of suffering. And people that say, I wanna just get it to those most in need, I answer, mm -hmm. you don't know who they are. So it's better to get it out to some people who use it to you know, just set it aside for a rainy day than to miss people who are really hurting. Talk, I totally understand the argument for getting it to those who are really hurting to, on the poverty line, can't feed themselves. The people who are able to save it, what, are you keeping a log of how much is being saved, say from the first round of stimulus checks to this round, and, and what that might mean for a demand-supply mismatch when finally, just finally, we might be able to go out and spend? Yeah, so what we know from... Over a decade of research past stimulus checks, what happened in the CARES Act is that people spend a half to two-thirds of their checks within a, two or three months after they get the check. So it's very fast. It's a lot of it. Yes, there are people who save it. Yes, there are people that pay off debt. Frankly, anything that we can do that helps households feel better about where they are financially is good. On the savings rate, I hear a lot of people talking about the aggregate savings in the United States. And we need to remember that all of those aggregate statistics mask the fact that we have massive inequality. So that top 
is really bringing it in. And we know from past experience, they are more than happy to put it in their, you know, wealth uh, savings account. So I think we'll see some pop as the economy opens up. I think we're going to be really disappointed on it ain't going to be a lot of pop. Um, but I could be wrong. This is tough. We haven't seen a recession like this before. We haven't lived through a pandemic in live memory. So there's a lot of stuff that's a, you know, what if, but I think we have to be clear that there are these upside risks and there are downside risks. And we really got to think about, you know, the balance of them and look to lessons. I mean, this, this stuff works. We got to so, do what works. So it seems like we're likely, if the vaccination rollout continues at its, you know, a pace and things are improving on the virus front, we will get this reopening. Hopefully that'll be associated with a strong recovery. You've done a lot of work on just sort of this idea of automatic stabilizers and the idea of tying these things to fundamental um, thresholds in the real economy. If you could sort of have your dream situation right now in which we have some sort of expanded UI, direct checks, et cetera, what would be the sort of triggers you would look for to ensure that money keeps going out the door until when? What would you want to see? Right, so I would absolutely think about conditions in the labor market. To me, what a recovery for all means is everybody who wants to be back at work is back at work safely, but it's the concept of full employment. And that's, so I think if that's what our goal is, that's what our metric should be in terms of when we are getting close enough. I've done a lot of work on using the unemployment rate, which I think is a great way to trigger into a recession, tell us we're there, I still think the unemployment rate, despite some of the issues it's having at this point in the recovery, is is going to be a really clear way, especially to communicate it. But I certainly, you know, employment to population ratio, I'm not going to argue about it, but it should be tied to the labor market. And what we should be looking for, not necessarily all the way back to February, but we need to have something where it's clear we got that oomph to get it to the finish line. <clears throat> And I think it's important. I would have loved to have seen uh, the unemployment insurance benefits. I think that's the one that absolutely should be tied to the labor market conditions for kind of obvious reasons. But it's one where if we let that one stop too soon, we have real problems. And this this like, you know, reauthorize it, kick the can down the road three months, four months, that causes a lot of strain on those families. And it causes a lot of strain just in general. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.